are continuing our series this morning, Relational Vampires. Relational Vampires. Loving the people who suck the life out of you. Amen. Uh, John chapter 12. You can open your Bibles. John chapter 12. We all have these people in our life. And if you think about your relationships and you think, I don't really, I don't really have anybody in my, in my life like that. Well, just so you know, you may be, if you don't think someone in your life is like this, you may be the vampire in the relationship. I'm just saying, not guaranteed, but there's a chance, okay? Uh, last week, we started this series talking about controlling people, how to deal with controlling people. And what we talked about was giving some, some basic ways that we can establish effective and healthy change in our relationships. This could be with a husband and wife. This could be with a coworker or a family member, a friend, a neighbor. Uh, so many different relationships can turn into these unhealthy relationships where there's a controlling person in the relationship. We talked about how to deal with these controlling people in our lives. But now, as we said, sometimes, and we need to understand this, sometimes people in our lives who are trying to control us do not do it intentionally. What I mean is they are wired in such a way that they are maybe a perfectionist or they are someone that just is a dominant personality and they are great at leading a company, at running a business, and they're really effective in those things and they just, you give them a task and they get it done. They're, they're list makers and they just get their list done, okay? They're not intentionally trying to hurt you, <laughs> But you're just a means to an end at some point, okay, for some of these people. They just, I got to get this done. And so if I got to move you out of the way or make you do this to get it done, it's just collateral damage, okay? It's just necessary casualties to the job getting done. So some people don't intentionally try to control you. It's just in their desire to accomplish, their desire to achieve. They come across this way. So we need to look at our relationships and discern, is this person intentionally trying to control me to make me who they want me to be? Or is this person trying to just accomplish something and they're not aware at how it's coming across? And so we need to step back and say, okay, we need to evaluate this relationship and then have a conversation. We said this last week, so many people are afraid to just have a conversation to express, hey, I don't understand why you expect this of me. Or I don't understand why you desire this or, or why did you say it this way? Have that relational conversation. Talk about these things. But if there is someone in your life that is in an unhealthy way trying to control you, trying to, you know, kind of take over, and, and it really doesn't matter what you say or think, they're just kind of, you're their pawn, and they're just going to do what they want, then we gave you some strategies to deal with that. The first thing you have to understand is that you need to know what you are called to do. This is huge. You need to know what you're called to do. Once you know what you're called to do, then you can start to determine what someone's telling you. Is this helping me to achieve what God has led me to be and who God has called me to be? Or is this distracting from that? Is this taking away from that? You need to know when someone's trying to control you. Well, honestly, evaluate the relationship. Is this an unhealthy dance? Kind of what we said last week. And then once you know this person's trying to control me, you can now say, I'm drawing a line in the sand. I'm drawing a line in the sand. This is it. Some of you have people in your life that, that if you don't say what they want you to say and do what they want you to do, they will just hound you and hound you until you finally give in. Some of you have people that call you 10, 12 times a day, text you constantly, just constantly. Well, what do you, what do you think about, what do you think about, what do you think about, and it's just this constant nonstop. And at the end of the day, you're like, stop, I'm tired. I have no life, no energy left. You've sucked it all out of me. And they're trying to control you and get you to do what they want. Some people will try to manipulate you. And do it through gifts or compliments. We said it last week, if you've got to evaluate, am I a controlling person? Am I in an unhealthy way trying to control someone? Why do you compliment other people? Why do you tell someone, hey, you look nice today? Is it just because you want them to say to you, you look nice today? Why do you buy your spouse gifts? Is it just because you want them to feel bad and buy you a gift? Uh, Valentine's Day just passed. I'm not going to ask you to raise hands, Okay. I'll be honest with you guys. This is not a joke. I'm not saying this is how it has to be. This is just what works for Sandra and I, okay? Ever since we were dating, and I love this about her, actually, she's not one of these gushy-mushy people, okay? 
Now, if you're a gushy, mushy person, God bless you. We love you, okay? We tolerate. I mean, we, we understand, okay? <laughs> Some of you are just like, it's always with the smushy and the moon, 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 and all this stuff. Okay, listen, keep it at home, all right? When I'm at Walmart, I don't need to see you, you know, with the hugging and the, the neck. Just, no, stop, okay? No one needs to see that, okay? One couple was telling me, this is a while ago, they said that, you know, the wife would always want to hug the husband, just always want to hug the person. And the guy was putting his shirt on, and she'd come up and hug them, and he's like, can I just finish putting my shirt on? Like, can I just, I'm just trying to put the sweater on. Can you just give me a minute? I'd love to give you a hug, but just not a great time, okay? Some of you are just wired that way. You're just, I just, you got to do it, okay? That's great. Some of you love holidays like Valentine's Day and all this. Let's just lavish my loved one with gifts, okay? Sandra and I, from the time we were dating, we've never celebrated Valentine's Day meaning we don't actually do gifts and stuff on Valentine's Day. Maybe once in a while it just so happens. Did somebody just amen that? Or what was that I heard? The praise the Lord, the hallelujah, testimony over here. Okay. Here's the thing. I, a long time ago I started thinking about this, and I thought, you know, I bet Sandra would like flowers just randomly versus when she feels like I only do it on Valentine's Day. Now, guys, listen to the men in here, single and married, okay, or hope to be married one day, okay? You can give your wife stuff on Valentine's Day. That's great. Go ahead, do it. I mean, it's all good. But don't only give your wife something on Valentine's Day because here's what it comes across. (laughs) We could do the invitation right now. I mean, it's great. Here's why. Honestly, here's why. Because your wife wants to know you care about her more than just on a holiday that says you have to. So give her something on Valentine's Day. Great. But maybe on a Tuesday, just randomly, just, hey, here's a little small something I wanted you to have. So that's great if you celebrate all that stuff. Some of you guys are into that. We've never really been into that. But if you are giving a gift, it could be true of Christmas, birthday, anything anniversary stuff, if you are only giving this gift to your spouse or a loved one or someone, you're complimenting someone just because you're trying to control a response, I'm not saying you're this like dominating, controlling person, but it's starting down that path. We don't want to just encourage people and, and love on people because we think we're going to get something in return. If you're not careful, that's, that's manipulation. That's control. Okay, so we got to be careful there. If you're in a relationship with someone that's just outright, down, out, just trying to control you, and you know it, then we talked about two things you can do. Change what you accept and change what you expect. It's your relationship. You have control. You can say, no, listen, I'm going to change what I'm accepting from you, and I'm changing what I'm expecting of you. And if you guys are on Facebook this week, I, I put a little video on there, and the audio, the quality wasn't great. I don't know what was going on, but... But I kind of followed this up on Facebook, that little video about, we talked about unfair expectations, that we shouldn't be putting unfair, unrealistic expectations on a loved one or our spouse. It's not fair. They can't fulfill all our needs. But I said it in this video, we have to be careful we don't go the other end of the spectrum and have zero expectations of any relationship. See, at one end, we have all these expectations that never get met. We're discouraged and we're disappointed and we're let down all the time. At the other end of the spectrum, we have no expectations and we just become a doormat. And people just walk all over us because, oh, well, I can't expect anything of them. That's not fair. No. We need to set fair, realistic expectations on one another and say, this is what I expect of our relationship. It could be a family member, a friend. It could be a loved one, a spouse. What I'm saying is it's okay to set some boundaries around that relationship. Look, I expect this, and I expect that, and I think it's fair. Then you have a conversation. What do you think is a fair expectation of our relationship? And discuss these things, because if you don't change what you accept or change what you expect, you become getting trapped in this unhealthy relationship, and it's not good, and you're giving control over to someone else. And so this morning, as we're continuing on this thought, I wanted to review that just quickly. This morning, as we're continuing on this thought, I want to be looking at how to deal with critical people how to deal with critical people in our lives. I read a quote that said this, to avoid criticism, so listen now, to avoid criticism, do nothing, say nothing, be nothing. Do you know what the point this author was making is? If you do 
anything, say anything, or are anything, criticism will come. And actually, honestly, if you do nothing, say nothing, and be nothing, what's the criticism? Man, that person's lazy. They don't do nothing. It's criticism. So if we are doing anything in this life, and especially anything for our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, there will be criticism. It's going to come against you. And so what do you do when that criticism comes? How do we process this criticism as it comes into our lives? What do we do to understand what we listen to and what we don't listen to? The truth is, if we do anything in this world, we are opening ourselves up to criticism. And usually, it comes from those that either love us or hate us, right? It's not usually in the middle. The person at the gas station that, that pay, you pay for your gas, he don't care, right? I mean, it's whatever. It doesn't matter to him. But your loved ones will bring criticism. And those that extremely dislike you will bring criticism, And so it's usually one of those two camps. And it's like, how do I discern this? And how do I process this? As we did last week, I want to start by looking at an example in the life of Christ of someone being critical. Now, as I said that, you're thinking, man, when wasn't someone critical of Jesus in the Gospels? Often people were critical of Jesus, sometimes overly critical of Jesus, accusing him of all number of things. But we're not going to look at, to start off, an example of someone criticizing so much Jesus. I mean, it kind of in a subtle way is, but it's more someone criticizing someone for something they did for Jesus. And so I want to look at John chapter 12, and we're going to start in verse 1. John chapter 12 and verse 1. It says this, Then Jesus, six days before the Passover, came to Bethany, where Lazarus was, which had been dead, whom he raised from the dead. Can we just stop right there? John just throws that in. Like just, you know that guy that was dead? Well, now he's raised from the dead. That's where he is. And he just opens up a chapter that way. And I love that about, about our Savior, that, that this kind of miraculous event is just kind of, hey, you know, it just happened. Like, it was cloudy. You know, it was like that average, just, well, whatever it is, what it is. And I love that it opens up there. But let's stop for a second and realize this man was dead. And Jesus rose him from the dead. And he's alive, and he's at the dinner. He's going to be fellowshipping with Jesus. And can I tell you something real quick? I can't think of the story of Lazarus and being raised from the dead without thinking about our salvation. What did Lazarus do to merit salvation, or resurrection, I should say, in that story? He just was dead. He was just dead. Does Lazarus call up from the tomb? I'm right here, Jesus. I'm right here. Raise me up from the dead. No, he's dead. You know what Ephesians says? Ephesians chapter 2? That we are dead in our trespasses and sins? That we have nothing to offer? No merit? No nothing we can give God that would make him go, okay, because you've done this, I'll go ahead and save you now. We're just in the tomb. And the scary thing is, we don't even know it. As human beings, we're walking this planet, we don't even know that we're as dead as we are. Because we have the semblance of life. We think we're alive, but we're not. And Jesus called out and said, I choose you. You come, come to life. And we respond to his initiation. And we say, God, I believe. And in the moment we receive what he has done for us first, we become followers of Christ. We walk out of that tomb. And then I love what he tells the, those that are there around the tomb. They said, go and loose him and let him go. That freedom that comes in Christ. See, so many Christians get saved and then we bind ourselves to all this extra biblical law. Or even go back to the Old Testament and say, well, I gotta be under this law and under that law. Things that Jesus fulfilled and set us free from. He says, hey, loose him and let him go. And I love that about our salvation. We are loosed in Jesus Christ and we are allowed to live free in liberty in Christ Jesus. And so John opens up with this amazing verse that I hope means so much more than just the first verse in a chapter. Verse 2. There they made him a supper. And Martha served, but Lazarus was one of them that had sat at the table with him. Then took Mary a pound of ointment, spikenard, very costly, and anointed the feet of Jesus and wiped his feet with her hair. And the house was filled with the odor of the ointments. And what a beautiful moment of worship. Could you imagine being at this dinner table and Mary comes in and 
she breaks open this ointment and she pours it on his feet and anoints him and then wipes it with her hair. Now, if you're not a, like into feet, that's really weird. Like if I was sitting there, I'd be like, I think I've lost my appetite. I'm, I don't need no more. I'm good. That woman just wiped her hair on his feet. We wear sandals. It's dirty out there. Like that's, that's not cool. But this woman just worships and just, I mean, why is she doing this? Is it because she wants to impress Jesus or control him? No, no, no. She's so broken by him that she's, I just, I know who you are and I'm just going to give you everything I have. That was just symbolic. Now, she really did break the ointment and pour it out. But I think it was a symbolism of her breaking open herself and pouring herself out. I'm just yours. I'm just, I'm just yours. I'm all yours. It's whatever you want. My life is yours. You guys responded so much better than Judas did. Look at how Judas responds in verse 4. Then saith one of his disciples, Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, which should, Simon's son, which should betray him. Why was not this ointment sold for 300 pence and given to the poor? This he said, not because he cared for the poor, but because he was a thief and had the bag and bare what was put therein. See, what's the criticism here? This woman just gave her just a beautiful moment of worship and praise to Jesus. And Judas is in the crowd and goes, whoa, whoa, whoa. What are you doing? Are you, are you an idiot? Like, what are you thinking? Do you realize we could have sold that for 300 pence and given that to the poor? Think of all the people we could have fed and you wasted it? You wasted it, giving it to, pouring it on his feet? I mean, you could have at least, here's what he's thinking. You could have at least put a little on there and sold the rest. You could have been a little, like, be a good steward after all and don't waste it. He just criticizes her. He rips her for doing this. However, John tells us after the fact, remember, this isn't in the moment. John wasn't sitting there going, well, he doesn't care because he's a thief. John doesn't know that he's going to betray Jesus yet, right? This hasn't been revealed. John is writing this after the fact. So he records for us, the readers, he's reminding us the end of the story, basically. This Judas, he's going to betray Jesus, and he doesn't really care because we found out later he was skimming off the top. So John is telling us this is really his motivation. Has nothing to do with the poor. Has nothing to do with Jesus. Nothing to do with this woman. It's everything based in a selfish concern. And in so doing, missed the wonder and worship that was displayed before him. He missed it. Why? Because his heart was in the wrong place. It was hard and indifferent to the things of Christ. He was so selfish that he said, I want the money. Give it to me. Let me hold on to the money. So how do you respond to critical people? Because we've all been criticized. Let me just ask you a question. If you've received criticism for something, raise your hand. If you've ever been criticized in any way, shape, or form. Okay? How many of you were criticized by a loved one at some point in your life? Okay? It's happened to all of us. So how do we respond to critical people? If you're taking notes, the first thing I want to encourage you to do the first thing we can do to respond to critical people. Often, you don't respond. Some of you need to write that as big as you can. Lock it up. Often, you don't respond. Some of you are like, what is he doing? I don't understand. What is this? Okay. Some of you are looking like you're so confused. Your mom never told you that? My mom would look at me like... That's what I saw. Those are the three things. Mm, 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 okay. And it's usually spun up like this. Okay. I'm getting out of there. Okay. I love you. You're pretty. You make great breakfast. Okay. Okay. Often you don't respond. Now, this is so hard for some of us because here's the thing when you believe in what you're doing, saying, or being, and someone criticizes you, Ooh, how dare you? And we get filled with that indignation, which we think is so righteous. How dare you question me? And we let them know. We get defensive. We get worked up. We get riled up. And, oh, I'm just going to lay it. Some of you grew up in homes like this. Any criticism whatsoever was met with this kind of defensive nature. Some of you go the other end. You have no problem not responding because you run from conflict so fast Someone criticizes you, you're like, well, okay, that's kind of true. I guess that's all right. I'm sorry. I'm just going to go away over here. 
Thank you. Okay. Can I have some more? Thank you. Okay. Thanks. Here. Two ends of a spectrum. The truth is, often, but hear me, not always, often, you don't respond at all. Just because someone criticizes you does not obligate you to respond. Just because they opened their mouth and said something doesn't mean you have to open your mouth and say something. This is tough, tough for so many of us, but I believe it's possible to practice in this life. I want to go to a passage in 1 Peter. Now, last week I didn't tell you this. We are going to go back to John 12, so mark it with something. 1 Peter, go way back in the New Testament here. 1 Peter, and we're going to go to chapter 2. 1 Peter chapter 2. And uh, Peter is writing uh, a firsthand account of the person of Jesus Christ while he was on earth. And remember, Peter, what did Peter have a problem with, do you think? Do you think he had a problem with keeping his mouth closed? Yes. Okay, if you're like, I don't really know Peter. Read the first, I don't know, first couple stories of Peter, and you're like, wow, this guy's got an opinion about everything, okay? I love what John MacArthur said. I say it every time I think of Peter because I think it's the best description of Peter. He was the apostle with the foot-shaped mouth. That's what John MacArthur calls him, okay? He just always had a way of saying something, and then people would be like, oh, did you hear what Peter, oh man, Jesus is going to get him for this one. Okay, I mean, if you were a disciple and Peter said, let me just say something. You're like, oh, here, here we go. Let me get some popcorn and listen to this one. This is going to be good. Watch him, watch him now. Watch him going to screw this all up. Watch this. Hey, come on. Come on. Okay. But here Peter writes in his epistle. By the way, the, the Peter we read of here in First and Second Peter and the Peter in the Gospels, they're not two different people, but they sure seem like two different people. And you know what changed in Peter's life? He became filled with the Holy Spirit, first and foremost, day of Pentecost. The Spirit came upon him. He sat under the teaching and preaching of Christ for 40 days after Jesus rose from the dead. And he allowed himself to be a follower of Christ, not try to lead Christ. And when he did those things in his life, we read First and Second Peter, we're like, wow, who is this guy? Look at First Peter chapter 2 and verse 23, speaking of the person of Christ. I love above verse 21, my Bible says, Christ, our great example. Christ, our great example. Verse 23, who, meaning Jesus, when he was reviled, reviled not again. When he suffered, he threatened not, but committed himself to him that judges righteously. Verse 24, who his own, who his own self bear our sins in his own body on the tree, that we being dead to sins should live unto righteousness by whose stripes ye were healed. Verse 23 is huge. Christ was reviled against. He was, he was criticized. And often, and especially when he stood before Pilate, he just stood silent. He didn't respond to every single criticism that was laid against him. Read the Gospels. Often he would be criticized and then he would pose a question. He would challenge them, but then he would post questions and he would try to teach them. Sometimes he responded differently, but oftentimes he would not really respond to the direct criticism. We just studied last Sunday night in Luke that the Pharisees said, what authority do you have? Why do you teach these things? What authority do you have to teach us these things? And Jesus, almost completely ignoring the question, says, what do you think about John the Baptist and his baptism? Was it from heaven or from not from heaven? It doesn't even acknowledge the criticism. When they say, well, we don't know if it was from heaven or not from heaven and of men. We don't know how to answer that. Jesus says, well, then I'm not going to tell you what authority I'm preaching under. He's like, that's fine. I'm not even, even going to go there with you. Like, he just understood. I'm not going to give in to every single criticism. You know why? Proverbs says it well. When a fool comes to you and says foolish things, and you engage that fool in foolishness, a person from the outside is going to go, man, who's the fool? I don't know who the fool is. They both look pretty foolish right now. So oftentimes, sometimes, you don't respond at all. We can respond the way Christ did when he was criticized at times during his earthly ministry by not getting angry, by not getting defensive, and not retaliating. Listen to what Proverbs 19.11 says about the wisdom of overlooking an offense. Proverbs 19.11, go all the way to the Old Testament. And I really want, I'm glad you guys have your Bible today. Uh, if you don't have a Bible, we'd love to give you one. Proverbs 19.11. I love this verse. Proverbs 
Proverbs 19.11 says here, The discretion of a man deferreth his anger, and it is his glory to pass over a transgression. It is his glory to pass over a transgression. Now, what does this mean? This doesn't mean, listen, I'm not saying every single time that someone sins against you, criticizes you, comes against you in some way. I'm not saying every single time we just go, oh, okay, and we're a doormat. No, 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 no. But oftentimes, we look at the situation, we look at the source, we listen to the criticism, we think about how we're living, how we're, how we're following Christ, okay? That criticism doesn't really hold weight. It's not really true based on what I see in God's word, based on what I know of myself, based on what I know is going on here. So I'm not even going to respond to that. And I love what Proverbs says. You know what it says? I'm going to overlook that. It doesn't mean I'm going to bury it down. It doesn't mean I'm going to forget about it. No, no, it means I'm going to forgive in the moment what that person just said. I'm going to overlook it. It's not, I'm, going to for, I'm just going to forget about it. You can't forget about it. What it means is, this idea does not mean it didn't happen. We don't ignore that it happened. It hurts. And we can acknowledge that it hurts. It means that you choose in real time to forgive what was said or done to you. Instead of getting down in the muck and mire with the critical person, you move above the situation. And how do we do that? By trusting in God's grace. We overlook a transgression. Man, there is great wisdom in that from the book of Proverbs. We overlook this. It's not saying, oh, I act like it didn't happen. No, no, I acknowledge it happened. I forgive the person in real time, and I move over it. The literal way to translate this would be get over it, quite literally. We get over it. But again, listen, I understand hurts, hurts, okay? Stupidest thing I've ever heard in, in the church. Well, there's a lot of stupid, but one of the stupidest things I've ever heard in church or in Christianity is to forgive and it's so not true. Do you know the only one that really forgives and forgets? God. Because he chooses to. But listen, your brain is a gift given to you by God. And remembering things is a gift, by the way. Some of you have begun to lose this gift. I'm sorry to hear that. <laughs> you walk into Walmart and you do one of these. I, I, milk? I guess I could get milk. I always need milk. And you go to the milk department. What are you thinking? Maybe it'll hit me on the way to the milk, what I'm here for. Okay. Gift of memory is a blessing. Some of you, how many of you, you remember your first child being born? How many of you remember that? And you were maybe in the room with, man, isn't, that, isn't it a gift that you can remember that? But you know what also is true in our sin nature? The, the memories, that, the ability to remember things that God has given us, that's a gift of God's creation, okay? We're, we're created that way. But sin came in and perverted that. So now you don't only remember the good, you remember the bad. And so what do we do? We're not going to maybe forget the offense, but we can move over it. And in real time, forgive. And guess what? The next day when that critical word remind, is reminded of you, what do you do? You move over it. You move beyond it. Because often you don't respond. Sometimes, secondly, sometimes you respond carefully. Often you don't respond, but sometimes you respond carefully. It's not that you react instinctively. Listen to what I said. You respond. It's a big difference between responding and reacting. Reacting is emotional. I just blow up on you. Some of you are more wired that way, okay? I heard someone say this weekend, you got to be weary of the quiet ones because those are the ones that probably will kill you, okay? Amen. The loud ones. Let's go ahead and go to invitation. We'll pray. All the men will come forward, we'll lay hands on. No, um, sometimes it's just somebody says something and it's just you just, boom, okay? When that happens, when that happens, we have to be so careful because it's not about reacting, right? It's about responding. It's about thinking through with careful thoughts. How am I going to speak to this? How am I going to act 
in regards to this. I want to go to another example, and I really do want to look at a fair amount of Scripture this morning. Go over to Judges chapter 8. Judges, way back in the New, Old Testament. Joshua, Judges, so Judges chapter 8 and verse 1. Now, as you're turning there, now this is kind of the wrapping up the story of Gideon. Okay, and as Gideon was called by God to go and actually it's an amazing story. It's the real 300. Um, I like to say it's the real story of the victorious 300. Many of you have heard of the story of the 300 Grecians that defended all of that. Um, they all died for their sacrifice, or they were sacrificed to save the nation of Greece. Uh, but Gideon's 300 actually won. Okay, but look at Judges chapter 8. And uh, as you read this, Gideon's gone through, his 300 has kind of taken this field. The other men in Israel are upset because they didn't get included in the battle plan. Okay, and we, maybe you've studied this before. The reason is because God was going to receive glory in this. And so he eliminated a lot of the force so that only God could get the glory. Well, in Judges chapter 8, listen to what it says here. Verse 1. And the men of Ephraim said unto him, Why hast thou served us thus, that thou called us not? when I went to fight against the Midianites. And they did chide with him sharply. They chide with him sharply. Another translation says they criticized him greatly. Gideon does exactly... Did Gideon know what he was called to do? Exactly. Did Gideon do what he was told to do? Yeah. Despite all human wisdom saying the otherwise. Okay? You want me to take 300 against a countless army? That's not really wise. Humanly speaking. But he does it. And he does exactly, when he does everything God says, the way God said to do it, and he gets up, and the men of Israel said, hey, 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 why didn't you call us? Who do you think you are that you can do this? We wanted to be involved. We want to defend the nation. We're important. You don't think you need us? Can you just hear somebody in your life maybe change the situation? But, I mean, who do you think you are? Why would you think you could even do that? You needed us. I can't believe you did that. Just criticizing him and criticizing him. Look at verse 2. He said unto them, What have I done now in comparison of you? Is not the gleaning of the grapes of Ephraim better than the vintage of Abiezer? You might think, what? What is he talking about here? You know what he's trying to do? He's trying to calm the situation down. He's saying, what have I done? Look, listen, calm down. Relax, Okay? Let's think this through. People don't understand why you are doing what you are doing. So they criticize you. Listen, you decide to go to church more. You decide to give up, crazy thought, two, two and a half hours for church on a Sunday by going Sunday morning, Sunday night. You decide to do that. You think that's important. Your neighbors, your family members, maybe even your friends, maybe even other believers are going to be like, what are you doing? You're giving up your whole Sunday night to go to church? You don't have to do that. Oh, you go to church three times a week? Like, are you not? Why do you even do that? Wait, wait, you don't let your kids watch what? You don't let your kids do what? Why would you even think that's important? Wait, what do you mean you don't look at this on the computer? Come on, it's fine. Nobody cares. What do you mean you want to honor your wife in this way that when we're all talking about her, you actually give a compliment and an encouragement of your wife? What are you talking? That's crazy. Come on, let it go. When you decide to do what God is calling you to do in whatever area, people will criticize you. How about this one? You decide to go back to school as an older person. You say, I'm going to go back to school and get my degree in whatever. People will criticize you. You can't do that. You're too old for that. You can't. Come on. How about this? Any, maybe some women in here might relate with this. You're a stay-at-home mom. What are you doing? You need to get a job. Man, you'd be doing so much better financially if you just got a job. You know, man, look at all the weight you're putting on everybody. Come on, come on, come on. Well, then you decide to be a working mom who stays at home. Well, geez, don't, isn't your career important to you? You think you need to stay at home with those kids? They're fine. You blah, blah. It's like you can't win, right? You stay at home, you're criticized. You go to work, you're criticized. You go to school, you're criticized. Don't go to school, you're criticized. Okay? As you're doing whatever it is that God is leading you to do, people are just... All over you. And so what do you do? Sometimes you don't respond at all, but sometimes you respond carefully, 
Gideon took time to carefully explain why he did what he did. And the people, with context, understood and were calm. When you read verse 3 of Judges chapter 8, you're going to find out the people, with context and understanding, understood what was going on. They were calm about it. Okay, we're fine. We're good with this. We have to take time and respond carefully with prayer and wisdom. Sometimes people in your life criticize you because they don't have context. That with the great love for you, they just don't get why you want to go back to school. So have a conversation. You don't have to, but give context calmly and rationally. And they may go, oh, I never thought about that. You know what? You're right. I apologize. It's amazing how just a little context can really help people to step back and go, oh, I see that now. But when we just react in anger or get defensive, there's no chance of understanding because now you're hurting their feelings as you're jumping all over them. The truth is, when emotions are high, wisdom is low. I think we need to write that down. I actually, I literally highlighted it in blue in my notes because I don't want to forget that. When emotions are high, wisdom is low. This is why you say something in emotion and five minutes later go, mmm, that wasn't smart. I've always said, wouldn't it be great? We should try to invent this. Some kind of a machine, okay? We're going to have flying cars soon. We can come up with this. Some kind of a machine that when you say something, you've got like a 30-second window that it will grab whatever you said and pull it back in your mouth, okay? We'd make billions of dollars if we could do this, seriously. Because so much we react and we just say something. And what happens? Oh, we got emotional. Oh, no, we said something we shouldn't have said. When emotions are high, wisdom is low. So if you respond to criticism, respond carefully. Realize that often critical people are really hurting people too. So the criticism needs to be met with grace, not defensiveness. Do you know why someone may be criticizing you? Because they themselves are hurting in some area. And when you jump on them and lash on them, you're just adding more hurts and more hurts. Sometimes be calm. Respond with grace. How about this? When someone criticizes you that you know loves you, okay, there's someone that you know cares for you, and they just don't have context, say, I want you to know I appreciate that you love me so much, you're willing to share your heart with me about this. And I want to let you know this is the context and why I'm making this decision, why I'm doing this, why I'm saying this. And I would appreciate if you would pray with me about it. Maybe I need to make some different choices. Can we pray about that? And just meet it with grace and love. Don't get defensive. Don't freak out, okay? Give context, because sometimes that may change everything. So often, we don't respond at all. Sometimes, we respond carefully. But third, we occasionally, you listen and make a change. You listen and make a change. You're in the book of Judges. Go back to the book of Proverbs, chapter 15. Proverbs chapter 15. Proverbs 15 and verse 31. Often you don't respond at all. Sometimes you respond carefully with context. And occasionally you listen and make a change. Out of all of them, if I had to rate them in level of difficulty, I'd have to say that Not responding at all, that is second in difficulty. Responding carefully, that's probably third. But number one would probably be this one. Actually listening to the criticism and making a change. This is difficult for us. Look at Proverbs 15, 31. The ear that hears the reproof of life abideth among the wise. The ear that heareth the word of reproof Right here at this reproof, this, the word is rebuke. Then it says in verse 32, He that refuses instruction despises his own soul, but he that hears reproof gets what? Understanding. You know what the, the author of Proverbs is saying? Man, if someone is bringing rebuke into your life, you need to open your ears and listen and say, okay, do I need to actually change something? And when you listen to that rebuke, and you take it in, and you consider it, and you pray over it, and you think about it, and you make a change, the Bible says you gained understanding and wisdom. You've actually growing. If you can look over the last so many years of your life, say the last five years of your life, 
and you look at the criticism you've received and you've not once looked at that criticism honestly and said, I need to make a change, then odds are you've not really grown in the last five years. Because listen, I'm not perfect. You're not perfect. We all need to grow in areas in our life. And sometimes it's the word of a loved one that will come to us. We need to listen. See, that's why we just can't shut it down. Oh, you're criticizing me? Nope, I don't want nothing to do about it. I don't want to hear it. It's tough to hear. But if those that love you, those that know you, are all sharing the same concern for you and your well-being, then maybe you need to listen and make a change in your life. If everyone is telling you this is an issue, if everyone is bringing the similar criticism, maybe, just maybe, you need to say, I need to do a little evaluation. I need to look inside and say, maybe I need to make a change. It's tough to hear because no one wants to be told they are doing wrong. I don't like that. <laughs> I don't want to hear I'm doing wrong. That's not very encouraging, but actually it's very encouraging if it's coming from somebody that loves you. Because the desire is to see you grow. I said it before, we're not critics, we're coaches, right? We're, we're coaching people up in the things of the Lord. We're encouraging them, saying the things they don't want to hear, but the things that are the best to make them more like Jesus based on his word. A critic just says, I want you to do this because I want you to be like what I want you to be like. A coach says, no, 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 I believe in you, and I believe there's so much more for you, so this is what I'm going to tell you. And it sucks in the moment. It's critical in the moment, but it's constructive. It'll build you up if we respond to it and make some changes. We can't just get defensive and assume that we are fine and others have the problem. I don't know if you've ever dealt with this in your life. You have a friend or a loved one that's just struggling, and you go to them and you bring criticism in a loving way, and they look at you like you're nuts. This is your problem, not my problem. I'm fine. And over and over again, you're like, no, you're, you're really not fine, but they treat you like you're nuts. Listen, don't get angry. Don't get mad. Think about it this way. How would you respond if someone bringing that criticism against you? It might be difficult to hear, but we just pray for them. We encourage them. We support them, and we remind them that the criticism is coming from a heart for them. But listen, sometimes we've got to make a change. I was in Bible college, and I was taking my first preaching class. So I preached every two weeks. The class judged us and graded us on our preaching. The, the, the professor, Dr. Wallace, sat in the back. He graded us. It was then filmed while we were preaching. And then we went to the library. That's a place where books are stored for any kids in here that don't know what a library is. It's before Google was as popular as it is. You had to go and actually read a book. It's crazy, I know. And you couldn't do it on your phone. That's nuts. Um, so we went to the little, little room in the library, and I had to watch myself preaching and grade myself. Worst class ever taking God. Hated that class. It was so funny. At first I realized, why are the students who are in the class with me grading me? You're taking the class with me. Why are you grading me? You, you, we're in the same class. Like, who are you to grade me? The professor, Dr. Wallace, 40 plus years of pastoral experience. You can grade me. Okay, we're good. And he came to me after like the third or fourth time preaching. And he said, listen, I've been looking at your evaluation and mine. And man, you're like 15 points under mine every time. Why are you so hard on yourself? I said, have you watched me preach? It's pretty rough. But you ever get like this? You're more critical of yourself than you are even of others? Like every little thing. Oh, I went, um, 14 times. I actually, no joke. I counted in one of my early sermons in a eight-minute sermon, 10-minute sermon, because they were short, just had to be a little more devotions. Some of you are like, you can preach for 10 minutes and be done? <laughs> I know. Tell me about it. No joke, 10-minute sermon, 32 ums, 34 ums. After like the fourth one, I was like, this is, how? oh my, oh, how do they let me keep talking? Like, it's just um, 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 ums, okay? But you know, one of the criticisms that the, the, the professor gave to me that I thought was important, some of you think I walk a lot when I preach. Um, it, some of you guys noticed this, okay? Last week, I had to stay at the podium, and it was horrible. Imagine what I do now times 100, okay, in my walking. No joke, one sermon, it was, phew, phew, phew. I thought I was watching like a tennis match. <laughs> Stop! But you know what, the professor, he came to me after like my third or fourth time speaking, and he said, and he was, he was great because he wouldn't just tell you preach this way, only this way. 
He was great at this. He would say, okay, this is the style you preach like. This is what you kind of seem to naturally be attended to. So I'm not going to tell you to only do this. I'm just going to give you a little criticism about how your style is. He said this to me, and I've never forgotten it. Walk with purpose. That's what he told me. You can move around while you're preaching, but have a purposeful spot. Go to that spot and stay there. <laughs> Let some, then move again, but walk with purpose. Now, when you hear that, you, think, you guys think, oh, that's silly. That's not that big of a criticism. I've already preached four or five times in this class. I'm thinking, oh, oh everyone hates. I was just walking. I'm an idiot. I can't. Just also all this you know, criticism for yourself. But you know what? I listened and said, I need to make a change. And over the years, there's been criticism that's come, and I'll just pick on preaching because it's something you guys see every week. There's things that people have said to me that I'm like, oh, I didn't want to hear that. But in the moment, I thought, man, God, thank you for that. Because I've had to grow in that. How about in your personal life? You ever have somebody come and say, listen, man, you're a little harsh with the kids. Mom and dad? You ever have your, the spouse come to you and say, listen, maybe you need a little, just chill out. Like, my goodness, you don't got to scream at them about everything. So sometimes, but as a parent, when the parent tells you that, how do you feel? Are you just like, oh, thank you so much. I'm really glad you shared that with me. <laughs> no, you get, you either get defensive. Well, you think I'm a horrible parent. Whoa, whoa. Captain exaggeration. <sighs> Bring it in. Or you go the other way and say, well, fine, I'm not going to say anything to the kids. That's third grade. Okay, that's where we're at at that point. No, you take it in. You consider it. You know, Sandra and I have gone through this. There's times I tend to be more hard on the kids. And I don't know why. Maybe it's because I'm a guy and my dad's, like, most compassionate thing he was. He said, get up, it'll stop bleeding in a minute. Okay, that was my, <laughs> that was my stepdad's advice. Heartfelt. Mm, okay. So I know, I know. Listen, guys, I'm being transparent with you. I know that's an area I need to greatly work on it and pray for me because I'm praying to get better at this. But I'm so thankful for a wife that says, hey, I love you. Man, you're, and it doesn't just come out with that criticism. You're a great dad, and man, we're so blessed, and all this other stuff. And then says, but I want you to know, sometimes you're a little hard on them. And in the moment, I don't want to hear that. But I'm so thankful for the criticism because I can make a change and then grow. Man, isn't that the point? To grow as a parent, to grow as a mom, to grow as a dad, as a follower of Christ? And so often, you don't respond at all. Sometimes, you respond carefully. Sometimes, you respond carefully. Occasionally, you listen and make a change. For time's sake, we're out of time. Um, I want to make sure we have time for communion. So I want to give you two things. Jot them down, study them this week, and then we'll follow up on this maybe this week on, on Facebook or even next Sunday. I'll open up with this. Two keys to remember. Write them down. I'll give you some verses and just pray about this and study this through the week. Two keys to remember. As you're thinking about dealing with critical people in your lives or you yourself, two things. Number one, allow Christ to guard your hearts and mind. Allow Christ to guard your heart and mind. Philippians 4 and verse 7, critical people coming against you. Christ, I need you to guard my heart and my mind. Help me to be guarded against the criticism that is unhealthy, that is negative, that's going to tear me down. Help me to be guarded against that. And then another key to keep in mind is, are you condemning or encouraging are you condemning or encouraging? Romans chapter 14, verse 10, uh, really through verse 13. So Romans 14, verse 10 through 13. Are you condemning or encouraging? How does Jesus handle the criticism of Mary by Judas back in John 12? I want to look at, real quick in closing. Go back to John 12. Hopefully you kept something there. If not, just turn to anywhere in the New Testament and nobody will know the difference. John 12. John 12 and verse 7. Did you just encourage me to mislead people in church? Hey, if they make the assumption, it's not on you. You know what I'm saying? Okay, so verse 7. Then said Jesus, I love this. Mary doesn't speak. She doesn't even respond to the criticism. Jesus speaks for her. Amen? I'm so thankful Jesus speaks for me to the Father. Anyone else? You're thankful Jesus speaks to the Father for you? He prays for you. He tells the Father who you are. Verse 7, then said Jesus, let her alone. Against the day of my burying hath she kept this. For the poor always you have with you, but you, me you have not always. Jesus spoke for her. 
as I'm sure she was already terrified to even be in the room, he speaks for her. And I can't imagine what she felt in that moment. Jesus commends her because she used the moment given to her for worship of Christ and prepared him for his death. Jesus was not anti-poor in this passage, but at this point, it's true. Jesus would only be in the flesh for a short time longer. While the poor are always with us in the world around us, she took advantage of the opportunity to worship Jesus in that moment. See, I love that Jesus speaks for us. Sometimes you're going to be criticized in this life for the things you do for God, the way you follow him and sacrifice for him, the decisions you make that your family members don't understand. Why do you pray with your kids before they eat? Why do you expect this? Why do you make this a priority? Why do you tell them that church is a priority? Why do you tell them that we're going to do this? Why do you set that tone for your home? You're just crazy. That's fine. Jesus will speak for you. You don't need to speak. Sometimes you speak and give context. That's great. Sometimes you listen and make a change. But you need to make sure that you're guarding your heart and allowing Christ to guard your heart and not be sucked into the negative criticism that comes into our life, which is unhealthy and tears us down. So I want to do this. Let's bow in prayer. And we're going to go to a short invitation and then open up for communion in just a moment. But I want to ask you right there we are to just begin to seek him in this area. And if you are one of those people that tend to be more critical, you don't mean it to be harsh. You don't want to come across that way, but it's just something in your nature. It seems like it's just, it's just part of you. Don't use it as an excuse anymore. Decide today that I'm going to, by God's grace, be less critical. Think about my words condemning or encouraging. I'm not going to never say something critical that I believe needs to be said if it's constructive and with a heart of love. I'm going to speak the truth in love. But if you're here today and you're in a relationship with a critical person who's constantly nagging you, criticizing you, nothing is good enough, nothing is right, it's always wrong, then I encourage you to redefine the dance. Nope. I'm not going to respond. I'm going to respond carefully. Sometimes I'm going to listen and make a change. But there are some people in our lives that are just constantly critical that we need to say, you know what, I'm drawing a line in the sand and we're not going to have a close relationship anymore. We're not going to be friends like we were because you know what? I just, I can't have that in my life. You're just too critical. I love you, but the best way I can love you is from a distance. So whatever God is doing, would you respond to what he's leading and how he has led you this morning? Father, we ask that you would lead, guide, and direct in all these things. We ask in Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Would you stand to your feet this morning? If you'd like to respond, come to the altar and pray. Uh, We'll have those in the front here that will pray with you. If you want to pray on your own or with a family, come and pray. Maybe you want to come and pray for preparing yourself for communion. Whatever God is doing, would you respond to him as he leads?